Good morning, family. If you would please turn in your copy of the scriptures with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And for those of you who are visiting with us, we started in chapter 1, verse 1, have been making our way through over the past month or so, a couple of months. And this morning we come to chapter 5, verses 11 through 15. So please read with me. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your consciences. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us or compels us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Lord, there's in this verse the heart and essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, which is to be dead to ourselves and to sin, to be alive to righteousness and to Christ because of love. And so we pray Please give us help in unfolding your word this morning. May it give us light and life in the midst of so much darkness around us and in the midst of so much darkness within us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in last week's sermon, we concluded with Paul's statement about our appearing before the judgment seat of Christ. And how at that judgment seat, we will be revealed, we will be manifested for all that we really are. For the believer, this is an event, the Bible tells us, like no other. For instance, in the little book of Jude, Jude verse 24, Jude prays this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before his presence. Before the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. So believer, that is your destiny this morning, that you will stand in the great day of judgment. And despite what we heard last week of the deeds of good and evil, what we are told here that God is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless with great joy. But for others, the scriptures tell us that it will be a very different experience. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, that this group will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And one in Jude, it is to be in his presence with exceeding joy and blamelessness for others and expulsion from his presence to what he terms eternal destruction. And so connected with this dual reality, as we come to our text for this morning, Paul reveals that he is working 
after a specific agenda as a messenger of Jesus based on this judgment and what will happen in the return of Jesus, he has, first of all, a fear-motivated agenda. We're told today, in no, no uncertain terms, that fear is not the right way to handle anything. You shouldn't be motivated by fear at all. But Paul has a different perspective because if the day of the Lord is really coming and there will be people who will be in his presence blameless and those who will be in his presence with fault and with sin and with condemnation and eternal destruction, then there is a reason to fear. Just like there's a reason to fear poison and drinking it. There's a reason to fear driving too fast. There's a reason to fear playing with gasoline around a fire. It's because the fear is real. To say, son, put down that gasoline because you're going to get burnt. Well, dad, don't you know it's no longer trendy in our culture to be motivated, motivated by fear. Put the can down, I said. And so we come this morning, verse 11, his agenda is a fear-motivated agenda, at least in part. We're going to see it's more than that that carries us, but at least in the beginning, that's some of what gets us going. Verse 11, therefore, Paul writes, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Because he believes in the resurrection and the coming again of Jesus for this great and terrible day of judgment, and it is both great and terrible, he is on a mission to persuade others to respond to God's grace offered in Jesus. And that's really the good news of the gospel. The good news isn't you're a sinner going to condemnation. The good news is, despite the fact that we are sinners worthy of condemnation, God has sent his son to rescue us. That's the good news of the gospel. This grace is the opportunity to escape what we deserve, the wrath of God and the just punishment through the work of Jesus Christ. And this word translated here in the English to persuade means to convince by all legitimate means the truth of this good news. Paul says we want to use every legitimate means to persuade people that they should believe the good news. The good news that they should turn from trusting in their own works and instead trusting God's offer of rescue in Jesus. So Paul admits that in his ministry, he has an agenda. And this agenda is to see people rescued from coming destruction through the mercy of Christ. But he makes it clear that he will only use the truth of God's word to attempt this persuasion. He won't use gimmicks. He won't use half-truths. He won't use manip manipulative tricks. As a matter of fact, he writes earlier in 2 Corinthians 2.17, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but we are men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Which brings us to the second part of verse 11, an appeal to God and the Corinthian conscience. So having this fear-motivated agenda to appeal to people to flee from the wrath of God and flee to the mercy of Christ he says in verse 11b, an appeal to God in the Corinthian conscience. Even though he has been called to this ministry as his life on mission as an apostle, he's been accused of having ulterior motives. He's been accused of making much of himself. This is all about Paul and Paul's aggrandizement and his fame. He's also been accused of using others for his own purpose 
And in answer to this, he writes in verse 11b, but we, what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. You see, Paul understands accusers will accuse. Haters are going to hate. But Paul lives with the reality that the all-knowing, perfectly righteous and holy God knows him inside and out despite the accusations. Those who accuse Christians and Christian leaders of only using religion for money, power, and status will always exist. They existed in Paul's day, and sadly, we have to say, in many cases, have proven to be accurate, those accusations. But Paul's life, he says, is itself a demonstration that he is not that, looking for money, power, and status. But rather, he is a self-sacrificing servant, living with incredible voluntary suffering and not in the lap of luxury. I mean, who can we think of that has suffered in the Christian life more than Paul or maybe another missionary we know? But you see, for Paul, this isn't enough. It's not enough for some. They're still going to accuse him. So here's the question. How does Paul keep on with such accusers, nipping at his heels, constantly accusing him, of having these other motives. He strives on knowing that ultimately he says, whatever you say about me, I stand before God. I stand before God who judges all and is known, I am known by him, he says. He says, what I'm doing is for God and stands accountable before him and all that he does in his name. So he says, what we are, what I am is known by God. But then he says this, I trust, I hope, it is also known to your own conscience, which brings him to his testimony before the Corinthian congregation. He says, I, I, I know that I'm known by God, but come on, I'm known by you all as well. He writes that he has hope based on their past knowledge of him. He he's just says, look at my time with you. Look at my life with you. Your consciences, if you will search them, you're listening to these voices of accusations. There are these voices, though, in your conscience that will affirm the truth of my ministry to you, despite what the accusers and the naysayers say. He is telling them to stop listening to the voices of his accusers and search their own consciences and what they say about Paul and his ministry. And this from their own experience. Which brings us, thirdly, to a heart-based boast. Here's what he says in verse 12. He is so desirous that they look into what their consciences say about him, as opposed to his accusers, that he writes this in verse 12. We are not commending ourselves to you again. That's not what we're doing here. But giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, not about what is in the heart. The word commending, we are not commending ourselves to you again. The word commending here mean, uh, literally means something like to put things and set them in together. We might say put the pieces together to, 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 to form a picture, to see the, the whole picture. The idea is a presentation of various evidences to prove something. When you put them all together, it, there's, a, there's a clear picture. That's what the word commending is, to put the pieces together, to present them, to give an idea. So what are the pieces that he wants them to put together? He says, we're not putting the pieces together again for you. That's already being done, or have, has been done. 
what are the pieces that he's already put together? Well, first of all, at the beginning of Paul's ministry, for him to be an established apostle, he would need to speak of his special call by Jesus. And we read that in the book of Acts. We have other accounts of it. Seeing that he was not one of the original 12 apostles, he needed a special call. He was not there with Jesus during the three years of his ministry. He would have to speak of the road to Damascus, of, of this, this unusual conversion. And that's he would have to tell them that's one piece of his original commending of himself. He would have to tell them that he had gone to Jerusalem to meet the other apostles, to tell them about his seeing the resurrected Jesus to see if that jived with them. He would have to tell them, the apostles, about his being commissioned by Jesus, what he was teaching, what he was preaching. He was seeking their commendation that he didn't need it, he said, but he did it for the good of the church. We read about that in the book of Galatians. So these are some of the pieces that Paul originally put together to commend himself as an apostle. On top of these, there was the clear evidence of what God had already done through him, the miracles, seeing people come to Jesus, the establishing of churches. These are all things that Paul had done that they knew of and had heard testimony and had seen for themselves. These are all the pieces to, that he that they had putting together his commendation originally. They would have also seen his scars taken on his back, his body, for the sake of Jesus. They would have known of his unwillingness to receive money from them, lest he be accused of just looking for their money. Plus, there's his repeated unwillingness to make his message more popular by changing it to fit the taste of the hearers. They knew that about him. It's one of the things they didn't like about him, apparently. And they know that all of these things that were presented before, who had, that it affirmed in their consciences that he was an apostle, none of this had changed. You know what changed? Accusations. People who undermined his ministry. Nothing of his testimony had changed. What happened was a group of people came along and accused him. And rather than listening to their conscience of what they knew about him, they listened to the accusations. And accusations for them equaled guilt. And so what Paul says here in verse 12 is, we're not commending ourselves to you again. We've done that. And it still stands as it is. So what Paul is saying here is, we're not going to start from scratch, ground zero. These accusers have come along. Now we need new evidences that you're really an apostle. And he's like, I'm just not going to do that. Nothing of my former ministry has been significantly undermined. Therefore, I'm not starting at the beginning with you again and trying to commend myself. I'm not starting it from scratch, ground zero. I'm not going to establish my apostleship and seek by further new evidence how I'm really a man of God. Despite the accusations of his opposers, his previous commendation by these evidence would paint the appropriate picture of him for them to make a judgment and should stand in their own consciences if they would but pay attention to them. That's what he's saying here. We're not commending ourselves again. That's been done. Paul goes so far as to say, which, by the way, is not the same as him. Not He does also answer the accusations, but he's just not going to start with, from uh, scratch with them. So Paul here goes so far as to say that instead of his reexamination or representation as an apostle, the church instead ought to have reason to boast about him and his, his companions. We typically think of boasting with a negative connotation, but the Bible and, and, well, general experience 
we see that there, there's this thing called rightful praise. Proverbs says, let another man praise you and not your own lips. In other words, there's a place for commendation, for encouragement, for praise, for boasting, he says. That's the word he uses here. They ought to have reason in response to these accusers to boast about Paul, but instead they're assuming his guilt. Given Paul's call, life, and ministry, the Corinthians have reason to boast of God's servant to them rather than willy-nilly believing the accusations of those who oppose him. Instead, they have reason to boast about him to the face of his accusers that a true Christ-like servant of God has been among them. What they're really dealing with comes at the end of this verse by way of contrast. There are those who boast about outward appearance versus boasting about what is in the heart. Now, again, remember, Paul is not being accused here of something like what we've seen in our day, and there's evidence against him. Remember, it, uh, in Timothy, he says, receive an accusation against an elder at the mouth of two or three witnesses. So he's not undermining that. I, I don't want anybody to hear this message as if leaders or even Paul was untouchable. That's not what's going on here. But it is Paul's ministry going along as it was going along, and these flashy, rich, rhetorically skilled influencers began to un undermine his ministry in a way that we're going to see in just a minute. Okay, so we're not talking about valid accusations of sin or of abuse. We're talking about a comparison of his ministry with our ministry. Okay, so just want to make that clarification because I'm here. I'm trying to listen to it through, as you're hearing it. And this can sound like a defensive leadership uh, as a carte blanche. You can't receive accusations. I don't want to come across that way. So what we're dealing with is those with outward appearance and those issues of the heart. These, in fact, are hucksters. These are peddlers of God's word. They are essentially arguing this way against Paul. This is what they're doing. They're saying, now, look at us. Now look at him. That, that's their basic argument. Look at us. And now look at him. Look at our influence, our power, our abilities, our persuasiveness, our success, our speaking abilities, our accomplishments. In our day, we'd say, look at how many followers I have. Now, look at him. Look at Paul, beaten, chased around, homeless, criticized by even Christians, not particularly gifted in speaking by the standards of the sophists, the ancient speaking community. They would say, look at us, now look at him. His churches, including your own, have all these problems. They have disagreements. He's trying to stifle the freedom of the Spirit in your worship. Remember 1 Corinthians? He's trying to stifle your worship services. He's confrontational. He's critical. He even writes angry letters. He boasts of what he will do when he writes, but then shows up and demonstrates frailty, weakness, and he even leaves when things get heated. He can't defend himself in person, but instead writes letters because he's a coward. Those are the accusations. Paul's like, God knows who I am, and I hope your own consciences know my genuineness. 
Paul says that they are judging by the appearance of these false teachers compared to his, but are neglecting what he has demonstrated from his heart. Paul is possibly thinking here, 1 Samuel 16, and the comparison of Jesse's son, his eldest son, Eliab, who is paraded out, remember before Samuel, is he the one? Is he going to be the anointed king? And they get through all of the all of the sons, and there was actually the one son who wasn't there that they didn't even weren't even interested in calling to the meaning, because if he's going if anybody's going to be called, it's not going to be him, and you know him as David. He's out tending the sheep, and he's not even included in the meaning, in, in, in the meeting. But 1 Samuel 16, the Lord says, verse 7, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's probably the idea that Paul is referring to in 2 Corinthians. And so there's this heart-based boast. From what you know of me, you should be boasting to these accusers. And stopping their mouths from their influence. Which brings us next to the question of, is this a crazy apostle or a rational apostle? Verse 13. He writes, for if we are besides ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So apparently another accusation that seems to have surfaced is that Paul is at times out of his mind. And he seems to be answering an accusation here. He's out of his mind. Well, if we are out of our minds, if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. It's something like that. Now, various attempts have been made to identify what he is responding to. Like, what, what was it about Paul that maybe evoked from them a, a question about his sanity? Here's three common guesses. First, unusual spiritual experience. And we read of that, in, for instance, in this letter in chapter 12 of him being taken to paradise, to the heaven of heavens, and experiencing things there that, that words could not utter. But I don't think it's probably that, because First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians 12 seems to be like, even he's hesitant. He's not, he's not like a lot of Christians today who would, you know, have some kind of experience. I went to heaven, I wrote a book, and made bumper stickers, and a Bible cover, and a TV program, and a made-for-TV movie, and, and directive. Di- you know, I'm going to tell everybody, Paul's like, we don't read about this at all except Second Second Corinthians, he's like, I don't even understand it or know it or get it. And I think it was me, but I'm not sure it was me. Well, really, it was me. And here's what I said. He doesn't seem nearly as as uh, anxious to get that out onto the market. But maybe somebody heard about it or some experience. I don't probably think that's what he's referring to here. Second, it may be that he was accused of being crazy because of his previous letter. It's, it's the letter that causes sorrow. It's the letter that, that it causes repentance and grief. And he himself says is a severe letter. And they maybe read it and said, this isn't like the tender, nice Paul we remember. I mean, this guy's out of his mind. And he may be responding to that. That's, that's a possibility. The third possibility, which I think is, in my judgment, more likely, is his radical way of suffering. Because of what he's going to say immediately in the next verse. You can't look at Paul and say, this looks normal. His willingness to suffer, his sacrifice, his leaving his family and his occupation behind, his leaving Judaism as it were, 
we know ultimately it's a fulfilling of Judaism, but Judaism as it stood in his day, I mean, you look at him and his degree of suffering and shipwreck and sacrifice for the church, and you just, by most Christian standards, if we saw this guy and he came into our church and he started telling us that he had done all these things, most of us would be a little bit suspicious and say, honey, keep an eye on that guy. And if he's all scarred and beaten up and he's standing out on the street preaching and he is beaten to a pulp repeatedly, most of us would probably say, when he comes to church, we need to make sure that the monitors are keeping an eye on him. Right? In my judgment, it's, it's his degree of sacrifice and commitment to Jesus that by any standard just looks a bit crazy. Paul doesn't disagree in this verse that he may very well be beside himself at times, especially in human terms. His relationship with God, his experience of the resurrected Jesus and his love for the kingdom of God is by most standards out of the ordinary. And when something is unusual, we tend to put the crazy label on it. This word translated, we are beside ourselves, means something astonishing, amazing, shocking, surprising, something thrown out of position or displaced. In other words, if you see like the bell curve or where most people are and they're, they're here in the middle and he's like the spike out here, it's like that's what this word means. It's something that's so unusual from the norm and it's definitely unusual for the Corinthian church. It looks insane. In whatever way this is true, that he is out of his mind, he says, if this is true, if this is the case, to whatever degree I am out of my mind, you know who I'm out of my mind for is because of God. His beliefs and his way of life in relation to God and Jesus call for him to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to travel around the world and to suffer to such a degree. All of these are definitely out of step with the ancient world and our world's description of what is normal. It is contrary to the prime directive to take care of number one, to be self-serving and self-preserving. If I'm crazy, I'm crazy for God, he says. The way of Paul's radical life is for God, but in relation to them, he says that he is very much in his right mind. If we are besides ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right, man, right mind, it is for you. This Greek word in the right mind means sober-minded. With God, his passions are let loose, but for them, his passions are self-controlled and moderated for their sake. Which raises the question, what is it that drives a person like Paul to be out of their mind for God and sober-minded in dealing with people? Which brings us next to the all-controlling influence of the love of Christ, verse 14. He says, it is the love of Christ that controls us. The word translated control can mean to hold together, to compress, to arrest, to compel, to preoccupy, to be taken up with. The, the idea of control is like something I'm out of control and somebody's controlling me. That's, that's not the word. It's by this inward compulsion of I can't help but doing it, but it's me who's doing it and I want to do it. 
A better translation here, I believe, is compulsion or influence. Then he says, we are compulsed by, we are controlled by, we are compelled by the love of Christ. And in in the Greek, the structure can mean one of two things. It can be either Christ's love toward him or his love toward Christ. It's what's known as a genitive. So it can be translated or understood either way. So he could be saying what compels me, what controls me, what pushes me forward and gives me power to live out of my mind for God and sober minded for you is Jesus's love for me. That, that that's what moves me. That's what shapes me. That's what compels me. Or he could be saying it is my love for Christ that compels me. So I'm going to do what I do and split the difference and say that it's both. I'm going to split the difference and say that what he means is that Jesus's love for him, which then invokes his love for Christ, is that which motivates him to live this kind of radical and sober minded life. So what we have is the picture of a man so taken into what Jesus has done for him in love that it awakens his own love, his own admiration, his own praise to Jesus, and thus energizes him to live in this way. Paul knows and we should know that this is the only thing that will ever really empower us to live a life worthy of the gospel. Guilt will not do it. A sense of duty will not complete it. A sense of shame will not motivate it. Nor will law, but only love ultimately can compel us as shaped and influenced by some of these other factors, but it is ultimately love that empowers true love for Christ. In one of Paul's primary prayers in another one of his letters, we see that this was a large part of what he prayed for believers. This is his prayer, he tells us in Ephesians, or excuse me, uh, should be uh, Ephesians 3.16, He says, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Remember, our outward man perishes, but our inner man is being renewed day by day. These these two verses are connected. But this is what I pray, that out of the glory of his riches, you would be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. How? Verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. How? That you being rooted and grounded in love. It's about love. And then he goes on to say, verse 18, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Can I make a confession and say, this is the number one prayer that I pray for you. There's a lot of prayers and a lot of prayer requests and a lot of potential things that could be prayed for. But I fall back on this prayer over and over because if there is a an awareness of the fullness of the inner strength of Christ and his love, then that will give you what you need to navigate hard things and disappointments and sickness and the loss of jobs and fear and anxiety 
It is being rooted and grounded in love that will strengthen you according to the inward person and fill you with the fullness of Christ in the way that getting an answer to your particular prayer request will not do. Pray that I get this job. Okay, I'm going to pray that, but here's what I'm going to pray is that no matter what happens, that the love of Christ and its breadth and depth and what is unfathomable, that no matter what the outcome is, you will know that you are loved by Christ and will love Christ through that, either getting it or not getting it. That's way more important than us getting a particular job. Is that cheating a little bit? Is that being lazy and not wanting to pray for the particulars? Well, we can get caught up in the particulars and just be making it and asking, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, and not growing in our love for Christ. And sometimes we say, give me, and God says, I'm not giving you, and then we don't have the inner strength to endure it and to handle it in faith, and to believe God, and love God through it. Now he didn't give me what I wanted, I'm just angry, and apparently he doesn't answer prayer. That's why inner strength of love is more important than the answers to our prayers. Not not that the answers to the prayers are not important, but I trust you get my point. That's why this is the number one prayer I pray for myself and for you. Because if we have this, then we can pray, not my will, but yours be done and love God through the answers. The love of Christ for us is the only thing that can generate in us a love for Christ. And in this way, we are strengthened and filled with all the fullness of God. Another way of describing being full of the Holy Spirit. Then being full, we are able to produce his fruit. This is some of what it means to abide in Christ, to derive our energy from him is to be full of his love. Now, is there a particular facet of God's love that Paul has in mind here? God's love is expressed in many different ways to us. For instance, God's love is displayed that he has created us. His love is displayed in that he sustains us. His love is displayed through his good gifts. His love is displayed through our our world, still, though being fallen, has many good things that are found in it. He has displayed his love in opening our eyes to see him and know him. He displays his love when he works in us that he is a God worthy of our worship. These are all expressions of his love. But Paul has something in particular mind in mind here when he speaks of the love of Christ, which we come to in verse 14b. The life after death conclusion. He says, because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So his conclusion here about the love of Christ is this, that Christ died in our place as a substitutionary death for our sins and just condemnation for them. That is most love invoking Because you see, God has created all people. God sustains all people. He gives good gifts to all people. But the particular love for the Christian is, he's loved me because he died for me. 
This display of love that Christ died for us is what particularly empowers him, he says. But it doesn't stop there. Not only did he die so that we would not have to die eternally, but he lives so that we would live eternally. And this life has a new quality to it. It is not as our fallen disposition is to live for ourselves. He dies so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but only for the one who has perfectly loved us and actually died for us, Jesus. This is, I believe, one of the greatest summaries of the Christian faith. To be converted, born again, spiritually raised from the dead, is to have a revolution in our orienting, orienting purpose in life. This is what it means to be a part of the new creational people of God to live under God's reign and rule forever and ever. It is to die to our self-will and live for his will because of love, which is infinitely better for us and for others. And only such a love-empowered life is the life which brings him glory. So, How do we apply these things? While we're not in Paul's position as an apostle trying to defend ourselves from false accusers, there are some things here which I believe we can learn from and apply as modern Christians. First, we see in this passage a legitimate motive for evangelism. And that is telling others about the good news of Jesus in the fear of the Lord and coming judgment. That's still a legitimate thing. It's not a popular thing. It's still a legitimate thing in the 21st century to fear that people will be separated from God forever. We're told in John 3 that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world could be saved through him. It is his offer of rescue from coming judgment that forms the good news that we have to share with other people. Our primary responsibility is not to go around condemning people, John 3 says that that, that's already the case. People already know, and that's why they have so many ways of trying to get out of it. But to announce to them that in their condemnation, there's the good news of Jesus's merciful love. Second, before we believe the accusations against fellow, this is another lesson we learned from here. Before we believe the accusations against fellow believers and leaders, We should search our consciences and ask what they tell us about them. The the, the book of Proverbs talks about the one who takes in the words of a whisperer and they go down deep. There's some people who just love to hear the gossip. They just love to hear the the lowdown. They just love to, to, have you heard? Oh, did I hear what? Before we accept such accusations, we should should search our own consciences and ask what they tell us about this particular person. A major part of the devil's work, remember, is accusation. But accusation does not necessarily equal guilt. This doesn't mean that we live naively or ignore accusations completely. I've already addressed that. But it does mean that our personal experience and conscience should be considered very seriously before we assume that accusations against those we trust are legitimate. A lot more could be said, a lot more applied in the nuance of that in revelations of just recent days even. Third, What matters most in our evaluation of churches, pastors, and influential ministries is not the world's standard of success, flash, influence, money, impressiveness, and followers. 
But what matters most are the matters of the heart. Is there in a ministry what we can tell, as far as we can tell, the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Arguably, most of the world, word of, uh, world, excuse my phrase here. Arguably, most of the word of God has been sustained. Most of, I didn't get that right. Most of the work of God, I think that's what I'm looking for. The work that God, of God that we see, most of that work is supported and strengthened, not by radical, flashy, impressive ministry, but by ordinary, humble, faithful service of God's people in our fallen world. Fourth, it is not for us ultimately to judge the apparently crazy things people do in the name of Jesus. Lord, there are some who don't follow you who are casting out demons in your name. And Jesus says, let them alone. It's not for us ultimately to judge, but whether the question is in their relationship with the Lord, whether they deal with God's people with rational, sober minded love. This is one of the fruits If people are just crazy for God. And you see, not only are they just crazy, but they they start destroying relationships and marriages and churches. There's a problem. Crazy for God and sober minded, self-controlled toward God, God's people is what the model we see in Paul. If someone's craziness alienates people, is bombastic and displays a my way or the highway, then something is wrong. Fifth, we need more than anything else to live a life that is aimed at pleasing the Lord. What we need for that is an immersion of the love of Christ for us. We need our affections and actions changed by that love more than anything else. This should be our frequent prayer for one another, that our strength would come flowing to us from Christ's love and then our love to others. Sixth, if you are a follower of Jesus and have been saved by his death, then you have died already. You have said already through the picture of baptism that the old you has been buried with him. And you now live raised in newness of life so that you would live for him. Our motto is to live as Christ and to die is gain. And lastly, if you're not a Christian this morning, then out of the fear of the Lord and the reality that judgment is coming for you and for me. And you will either because of Christ be present in his presence with exceeding joy and blamelessness, or you will be cast away with destruction I give you good news this morning that if you're not a Christian, God's judgment indeed is hovering over you. All the good you experience is merely out of his patient mercy, but he has sent his son on a rescue mission and extends through the gospel a hand of rescue to you this morning. And that hand of rescue brings you into the realm of his everlasting love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that if you believe on him, you would not perish, but have everlasting life. And that is the good news this morning. Let's pray, please. Father, bless, even through my fumbling words, your word this morning. Bless us as we come to the Lord's table, as we remember 
the greatness of Jesus' sacrifice of his love for us and shape our hearts and lives by them. We pray in Jesus' name.